0: Welcome to the Beginner's Guide to all things economic, political, and sociocultural. Here we will be sharing quick bites into all the topics, concepts, and theories that we all talk about but should probably know a little bit more about. I'll be doing my best to keep it unbiased, to the point, and hopefully interesting enough to inspire you to dig a little deeper on your own. With that being said, I'm your host, Emmy Davis, and this is a Beginner's Guide to the Supreme Court. It's, it's stupid. Outrageous. Allow me. Liar. Baby. Don't wise Are you From me? Judge Judy yeah. to Ruth oh boy, Bader Ginsburg, Judge you Joe Brown right. to Brett Kavanaugh, people hold very strong opinions about these judges and their impact on society. Besides the occasional landmark case and times of nominations, the media has laid relatively uninterested in the Supreme Court's workings. Not many people knew who every justice on the Supreme Court was, and most definitely, they did not pay attention to how and what they were ruling on. However, this took a sharp 180 degree turn the moment it was confirmed that the 45th president would in fact get to name not one, but two new justices to the Supreme Court. Due to the irresponsible behavior of many in Washington DC, the Supreme Court has become something it never was meant to be. Political. And once you get political, you get a lot of confused people unsure whether or not they should be mad or glad about the latest news coming out of Capitol Hill. While the Supreme Court was something meant to be the people keep tabs on, keeping tabs back then meant something a little different. It was more like keeping up with their decisions and less about keeping up with their supposed scandals. The Supreme Court was intended to be apolitical with their only political allegiance being to the constitution. The legislative branch first exercised its power with the Judiciary Act of 1789, which was signed into law by President George Washington. The act specified that the court would be made up of six justices who would be nominated by the President of the United States to be confirmed or denied by the Senate and serve the court until they died or retired. Fun fact. While the first court was comprised of six justices, Congress has altered that number over six different times. The lowest number of justices at one time being five and the most being 10. In 1869, Congress changed the seats to nine which is where it has remained since. Regardless of the number of justices serving at once, the structure of the Supreme Court is simple. One chief justice who is responsible for presiding over the rest of the justices, setting the agenda of their weekly meetings, assigning who will write the court's opinions, determining their caseload, and preside over any trials of impeachment in the U.S. Senate. The court receives around some 7,000 requests and hears about 100 cases per term which begins the first Monday in October and ends in late June. Now, I know I said that the chief justice determines their caseload. All the justices play a role in determining both which cases they take on and what their final decisions are. When presented with a case, the justices vote, usually in secret, on whether or not the case has merit. They then use the rule of four to decide if they will take the case. If four of the nine justices feel the case has value, they will issue a writ of certiorari. This is a legal order from the high court for the lower court to send them the records of the case for them to review. They use that same rule of four when determining the outcomes of cases as well. If the chief justice ends up voting with the majority or the winning opinion of the case, he or she will select a justice who voted the same to write the official verdict of the court. Oh, and the chief justice can select themselves to write the official verdict of the court if they wish. However, they cannot write it if they find that they voted with the minority or the losing opinion. If this is the case, the Chief Justice then has the longest serving justice from the majority write the official verdict of the court. And all the justices may write in full or in part a dissenting or concurring decision for the public to read. As the country's court of last resort, how do cases even get to the Supreme Court? and What kinds of powers does the Supreme Court really have? These are the questions that we seem to be running into a lot lately. For what was meant to be a quieter check on the balance of power, there's been a lot of noise surrounding it. In a lot of ways, the Constitution was pretty vague in lining out the role and the power of the judicial branch, and left much of it to Congress by stipulating that the judicial power be vested in one Supreme Court and in such inferior courts that Congress may, from time to time, ordain and establish. Since then, it has been defined that the court has the authority to act in cases that arise under the Constitution, laws, treaties, and in controversies where the United States is a party. The United States vs. Nixon is a good example of this. And I want to say this to the television audience. Well, I'm not a crook. Additionally, they have authority to act in disputes between states or citizens of different states, maritime, and anything that affects ambassadors, consuls, public ministers, or where a state is one of the parties involved. The Supreme Court does have the ability to take a case that has not yet been heard in any court. This would be called original jurisdiction, just in case you were wondering. However, it is more rare than not. The Supreme Court usually only takes cases that have already gone up through the lower courts. This process of going through the lower courts became precedent with the Circuit Court of Appeals Act of 1891. This court established the nine intermediate courts who have final authority over appeals from other federal district courts. Something has to be pretty controversial or have clear constitutional groundings to make it through all of the lower courts to get to the Supreme Court. Well, controversial or be a blatantly unconstitutional act of Congress. The Supreme Court can essentially veto any new laws or bills passed by Congress or the president if they decide that there is no legal constitutional right to pass it. Remember, we have only been referring to the Supreme Court of the United States, not the state's judicial branches, even though they could be talked about roughly the same. In an attempt to show how everything's been a little over-politicized, I'm gonna bring up something a little controversial. Well, controversial and then hopefully completely non-controversial. Okay, so we can't talk about the Supreme Court nowadays and not mention the recent overturning of Roe v. Wade and subsequently Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Ever since their initial rulings about 50 years ago, there has been somewhat of an underlying panic that both rulings would be overturned at some point. So much so that it seems like every review process of potential Supreme Court appointees has been dominated by the media and Senate trying to figure out their opinions on those specific cases. Ironically, the overturning of them can be a good example of the Supreme Court acting closer to their original intent. Remember, The main purpose of the court is to hold whatever the case in question is up to the Constitution. So, A, see if it's covered in any way by the Constitution, and B, if so, what can be derived from the Constitution in relation to the case at hand? And if you recall, the Tenth Amendment of the Constitution reserves the powers not specifically delegated to the national government, quote, to the states respectively or to the people. Have you figured out where I'm going with this yet? In reading the official opinions for the overturning of Roe and Casey, the Supreme Court felt that the issue of abortion was, in fact, not something covered anywhere within the Constitution. So, in the name of the Tenth Amendment, if it's not something specifically delegated to the federal government to decide, then the decisions should stay in the hands of the states and the people, which is exactly where it's at now. The overturning did not ban anything, it simply put the decision back in the hands of the citizens in their prospective states. If there is one thing we know for sure, it's that the more decisions that are away from the federal government and in the hands of the states and the people, the closer those decisions are to reflecting the will of the people. Just as the free market is able to ebb and flow in a more responsive way, the more localized laws and decisions are, the more responsive they can be to what the citizens truly want. Now, is that too controversial? I sure hope not, because we still have got the remaining branches of government to go over. Next time. This has been the Beginner's Guide to the Supreme Court, and I'm your host, Emmy Davis. This podcast is a subject entertainment production for Free Markets Destroy, a project of the Washington Policy Center. Free Markets Destroy celebrates the power of the free markets to tackle humanity's most daunting challenges. The world isn't perfect, but it's getting better every day, thanks to entrepreneurs who work tirelessly to deliver life-changing innovations. Washington Policy Center is a nonpartisan, nonprofit public policy research organization that publishes studies, sponsors events, and educates citizens on vital public policy issues. For more information on either, check out freemarketsdestroy.com or washingtonpolicy.org. As always, thanks for listening and do your own research.